Hey, and welcome to City Hall Stories. I'm Jack English, and I think local governments have some of the most interesting stories that exist. Almost everything we do on a regular basis is affected by local government decisions, and this provides a massive opportunity for real change if we better understand how it works and how to affect it. I hope the incredible humans you hear from in this podcast inspire you to look closer at your own local government and become a part of the solution. Jeanette Valvey is the Chief Digital Officer of the City of Boston, Massachusetts. Jeanette has an incredible resume that speaks to a love of the environment and a deep sense of care for her local community. While at the EPA, she drove a revival of the historic Documerica project before moving to lead National Geographic's digital strategy. From here, she was tapped to lead Boston Mayor Marty Walsh's, now the Secretary of Labor, his vision to accelerate digital accessibility for every Bostonian. In our conversation, we discuss the hard choices residents will have to make around data privacy if they truly want private sector efficiency from the government, the singular power of photographs to evoke emotion, and why so many cities are still stuck in the dark ages when it comes to offering residents digital services. Please enjoy my conversation with Jeanette Felvey. Jeanette, really excited for our time today, specifically for the diversity of experience that you bring to your role with the city of Boston and this conversation in general, having one of the more unique backgrounds that I've come across in local government. Now, your current role is your first in local government, although you did spend eight years in federal government. Just to begin with, do you mind touching on maybe some of the key differences in operating between those two environments? Sure. And thank you, Jack. It's so nice to to be speaking with you today. Really, the the main difference is that you're obviously able to impact the immediate community around you. At the federal level, you have a much wider expanse of of influence. But I did find that my time at the federal government, when I worked for the Environmental Protection Agency, a lot of my work was very community-based and community-focused. I worked in many different communities, and I had a lot of opportunity to have boots on the ground in a few areas. And that is why I ultimately decided to go back to local government because I missed that proximity to impact. And so in a lot of ways, there are some similarities there. Um, But of course, federal government, you're affecting national policy and and things that can influence and and make a difference across the country. At the local government, you just hope that you set a good example for other cities to follow, which I believe we've done with our work on the digital space. And how much of an influence on each of those areas do the national political wins have on your day-to-day? I'm sure probably a bigger impact uh, when working with the EPA, but would be curious to hear maybe at the city of Boston as well, if that's had any impact. There were a few things, particularly around digital work, where we would reference federal policy or look to federal government, for example, whether that was how to handle or archive social media posts and drafting a social media policy for the city or looking at just archiving web content, or even just best practices for publishing web content online, where there were federal standards set or policy expectations made for something like plainlanguage.gov. It was very handy and helpful to reference that. You would think that these are kind of no-brainer best practices to put into place, but sometimes it takes a little bit of convincing and sometimes it's helpful to show, well, this was an expectation of the federal government years ago. So at the very least, we can can try to meet these standards. Stepping outside of the specific digital team space, um, how national politics and policies kind of affected our work, we were less driven by that. But of course, the political environment at large at the city and the leadership there is obviously influenced by national politics and policies. And so being a part of the city of Boston, where I was not there at the time where the mayor 
was in line with the president um, that had changed with the administration changed over. And so it was a little bit more adversarial to be expected. So we didn't have to be at the whim of those kind of political back and forths. Our job at the city with the digital team was really just to serve the residents and and not get caught up in any of the political things going back and forth um, for good, bad, or otherwise, which I actually was very grateful for uh, because at the end of the day, no matter what's going on at a national level or even an international level, we have services we need to provide to residents. And we had at any given time, 70 plus departments and programs that needed support with getting their information out. And that was our job. And so we were, we were very happy to kind of avoid that or, or keep our head uh, below the radar there um, and just service and support the city as needed. And when larger things came up, we absolutely were in service of, of the mayor's office. That is without exception every day. Um, but as far as reaction to current events, we really didn't have to get involved as much. Makes makes a ton of sense. So I want to actually touch on your time before the city of Boston, actually, when you were working with National Geographic leading their digital strategy. When it comes, and I, I think you were particularly involved in a project that interested me called Documerica, and would love to for you to chat a little bit about that. And then also touch on, you know, when it comes to driving societal change on something as deep and, and elemental as how we treat the environment, does photographic media have uniquely powerful qualities to evoke emotion and, and ultimately change behavior? Oh, absolutely. And I, first of all, I mean, I could talk about Documerica all day. I, to this day, it is the single greatest project I was ever a part of working with. And the people that I was able to connect with and just the whole experience of that project will hard, it will be hard to be matched. And I think that there's no more important or transparent project that the federal government ever led. This is beyond EPA. Really what Documerica was, was that idea that photographs could change the world. And this was the same idea that was a part of the transition at National Geographic when it went from a geographic journal to photographic imagery and maps and visualizations transporting people to places that they could never dream of going to. And so that obviously has been successful and that has changed the world. Photographs changed the world. And so this idea and at the very concept of Documerica, a young man at the time who had been working at National Geographic was very compelled at the idea of the Environmental Protection Agency. And when he heard about its formation, he decided to join on with the mission. And so he served in the public relations office and in early days was working with the then administrator at the time. And they were talking about how do we wrap the public's mind around this mission? Here we are to protect public health and the environment. How do we help people grasp that concept? And how do we put this responsibility also in the hands of the public so that they too are a part of the mission? And so the idea was developed. Let's get the nation's best men and women, best photojournalists, and have them cover cover the country, cover every state, cover what's good, what's bad, just everyday life. And through thousands of images, we will be able to compile a picture that is a moment in time that speaks to the quality of the human condition and health in, in our environment. And that serves as a visual baseline for the rest of time. And the idea was that after the initial photo collection was gathered, the same locations would be revisited every five to 10 years to show what change had been made and to give that visual report 
back to the public and give it to Congress to say, look, here's the result of what EPA has done. You know, we've passed the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act. You know, we're not seeing black smoke coming out of factories anymore. We're not seeing foamy pollution come out of pipes into rivers anymore. This is the visual difference. This is the actual impact and difference that EPA has made. And so an incredible, incredible idea, an incredible project. And what will forever be a bit of a a tragedy is that it was so successful for those first seven years. Uh, Nearly 100 photojournalists went out and spent years of their life documenting the country and were so incredibly passionate about this mission and this idea. And then in 1977, the political tides turned and a lot of companies, oil, chemical, the gas industry was not happy with this exposure. They weren't happy with this transparency because these journalists went into mines, they went behind the scenes, they went at the top of airports, and they were able to get photographs showing the raw reality. And that, of course, didn't make certain industries very comfortable. And so they started lobbying against the project, and it lost political support. Thousands, over 30,000 slides were boxed up and ended up at the National Archives. It's a whole other story where they went in between. But it ended up at the National Archives and was largely forgotten about. And the project director actually suffered health effects after this because he was so devastated. And I, I came to know his family quite well during this time. For nearly four decades, it sat in a box. And I happened to be a part of starting up EPA social media efforts and really exploring those tools when I was at the agency. And I ended up with, on a call with the National Archives and said, just kind of curious how you're using this tool, how, how you're using this. And they said, hey, by the way, you know, we've come across a box of slides that are labeled by you know, with the EPA, and they have some incredible images, would you be interested in kind of learning more about this? And I, I was like, yes, send me the link. And they sent me the link on the call. And I was like, oh, my God, this is what the country looked like in the 70s. Everything that I've been trying to work on to help the public realize the reason EPA exists, the reason we have these regulations, the reason we're, we're trying to protect public health and the environment is because this is how bad it used to be. And it's hard, unless you've lived through it, to really truly grasp that. I mean, this is why history repeats itself. So I knew we had to create a new modern version. And that's what I that's what I attempted to do back then. So I created sort of a modern revisitation of Documerica. I called it State of the Environment. I really thought at the time that we should, with so many environmental problems being global in nature, I wanted to expand it beyond the United States. And I wanted to allow international participation for fo- photographic contributions. And that sent me on a multiple year endeavor to get to know any of the photojournalists that were still alive and get to know the family behind the project creator, Gifford Hampshire, and get to know, if I could, the administrator at the time um, at EPA, I got to speak with him and just hear their story. And there was a variety of reactions. Some people were, were devastated still and just couldn't bring themselves to even talk about it. And others were beyond thrilled that somebody had found it again, that somebody was bringing this project to the light because they believed in it more than than anything. And it became a life's mission for them. So when I was able to, to put this out to the public, there was a community that developed. A couple thousand photographs were submitted. And I was in touch with a few photographers that were a new generation of folks passionate about it. And it was incredibly exciting to work on it. The National Archives put an exhibit together and I worked with them to feature some of the new photos in addition to the older. And uh, it, it was an interesting time 
too, because similar to the later 70s when the project was kind of falling out of political favor, um, I did face some difficulty internally at EPA from the communications office that was afraid of putting out images that were negative. They were concerned and afraid of endorsing images, good, bad, or otherwise. And I kept repeating and saying, well, the the very nature of the original project is what we're mimicking here. This is just a snapshot in time. We are not endorsing any of these images. This is just the reality of what's happening in the world around us and what we are working towards improving and supporting. And it was a difficult time, um, but I did have some minor successes and that I'm grateful for. But where I really hoped to take it, it didn't quite come to fruition. Um, And I had hoped at the time that it would be a much bigger project. There's a lot of press coverage about it. And the exhibit was wonderful to be a part of the National Archives work there. But it could have been it could have been more could have been more. And but the the great thing about it is, is is this project and that same concept can be revisited anytime. It can be 50 years, 100 years from now, 1000 years from now, those original records exist. And it can always be a comparison to where we are today with our environment. What an incredible way to start the podcast and totally agree. It's such an innovative way to provide a, I guess, an objective measure to really impact legislative decision-making in a way that's really impossible to obfuscate or deny, especially when citizens are able to see the exact same photos and records that the Congress people are seeing. And I'd recommend all listeners to go and look up this project, um, some really fascinating vignettes of Midwestern and industrial life. Leading on from that, when moving uh, most recently from, from Nat Geo to the city of Boston, was it difficult to accept that your work was kind of done when it came to at least dedicating your nine to five to the environmental cause, or were you still able to bring some of that energy into your role in whatever way that may have manifested? You're hitting on one of the questions that really circulated in my head and was my only initial reservation with making that change. But one of my close mentors at the time echoed something that was also in my mind, and he reiterated, being at the helm of the city of Boston's digital work, you can promote and elevate environmental content and stories any time of day, any day, and you can have a wider megaphone for the city. And that's what I was excited about. I was excited about that opportunity. And within my first days of working there, I called up the head of the environment department. I called the superintendent of public works and we got together and we talked about this and I asked them, what are your goals? How successful are you right now? What's the city's take on this? What are, what's what's the emotions of the residents behind recycling and support for zero waste efforts and how can my team help? How can we get the word out? How can we be more creative about it? And they were thrilled to even have that, that person come to them and ask these questions. And so that set off a great partnership with those departments and with their initiatives. And my team was all for it. You know, many of us were also environmentalists at heart. And so my design team did an amazing job creating some incredibly interesting graphics. And we've basically recovered all of our recycling bins across the city. And there's great imagery of of sea turtles and, and other things on there to encourage people to recycle more and to cut plastic waste. And they're interesting designs. It's it's very different than the standard, here's a recycling bin, here's a trash bin. And it's simple things like that that people interact with multiple times a day in their everyday life that can make a difference. And really environmental change is about those small incremental changes that you make constantly. Just a little bit of difference 
all the time is what adds up. It's what got us into all the problems we have. And it's the only way that we can change behavior to get us out of all the problems we have. And so I was I was excited about that potential. And I will always be proud of, of the work we've been able to do there. And I think that I think that residents are also proud to see some of these visualizations and some of these graphics go out and to hear about the initiatives. It, it makes them feel excited that the city's taking care of things. That's been great to be a part of. The role itself of chief digital officer is still relatively novel for most cities. You know, they've had IT directors and CIOs and even CTOs for a very long period of time, but your role is still pretty fresh. And we all know that resident touch points have become more digitized in the past decade plus, but we probably don't appreciate just how much that has become the case. Can you maybe quantify or describe the extent of some of those changes and how important a city's digital experience has become in, in 2021? Absolutely. And and this is this is the epitome of our work, really. And the pandemic clarified it more than ever. When I took over the digital team, there were efforts underway to digitize some of the experiences and applications that residents had no other choice formally but to come into City Hall to process. And there are still processes like that. But that is really a difficult thing to ask people to do, especially if they work during the day. Of course, most do. If they have access difficulties, if they have financial difficulties in doing that, if they have childcare difficulties. And so the expectation that people need to come into a building to process something with their city that might be a vital document or might be something that that is holding them up from moving on with their life and it's a necessity, that's a pretty terrible way to go about supporting your residents and supporting your community. We can't we can't make these basic city services inaccessible to all. And so I was a part of this evolution at City Hall. I was a second chief digital officer. And, and really, my message to my counterparts, my peers was to say, we're not replacing in person. In fact, if we can get this application online, it might cut down, even if it cuts down 30% of your traffic in person, but ideally much more than that, it gives you the ability to spend more time with the residents that come in who need additional support and need additional time. And that's been the case. You know, Our greatest success story has probably been with the registry department in getting all of the workflows for birth, death, and marriage certificates able to be processed online. And that's cut down foot traffic in City Hall by a significant amount. Not only foot traffic, it was the first time that the city registrar said she didn't hear the phone ring for 10 minutes straight. She timed it. She's been there for a long time and she was blown away. And this happened within 24 hours of the applications launching online. So people were processing things. They were getting their certificates in the mail in days. They were writing to us. They're absolutely thrilled. And particularly, you know, if it's a birth certificate and the family needs to travel. And it's the only way to identify the baby or, you know, in terrible times where, where families are processing a loss, to have to go through a process that drags it out for months or weeks is just totally unacceptable. And so the fact that they were able to turn these needs, needs around in days, they were just so thrilled and so grateful that the city of Boston had its act together. And it's funny because, you know, these things aren't easy to do, but they're not impossible. It's just, it, the resourcing that it took to staff up a digital team and to create a digital team to do these things is it's not going to break the bank. You look at other longer standing technology debt and IT debt in cities, and it's a fraction of that cost. And it, it makes a tremendous difference for people in their day-to-day -day lives. And 
we have heard and and folks have been so grateful for that they were able to spend the time with folks who needed it. And, and that affected city staff as well as constituents. We also heard from the registry that their teams were able to take a, a full lunch break. And this is actually one of those misconceptions about City Hall, and I can speak to it from Boston, is that so many folks, the majority of folks are incredibly dedicated to their work and many go home later. They work longer than the nine to five. They're trying to finish the day because they know if they finish their work, it will make a difference in people's lives. And some of these folks were just never taking lunch breaks because they couldn't have the time. The, the increased call upon the birth certificate department with uh, with the state's real IDs requirements increased call load by 30% everyone was just underwater. So when we put this online and most folks were able to process it, it allowed people to take a breather. And that that's a quality of life change for our staff as well. So Boston residents are lucky that they have a chief digital officer at the helm that's really driving this. However, a lot of counties and cities and towns, uh, not only in the Northeast, but really across the US still struggle from just a real lack of digital accessibility for basic services. Mm-hmm. And we know why cities move slow on things like road design or infrastructure decisions, right? Because they're impactful and they're going to last for 60 years and we need to engage a lot of stakeholders and blah, blah, blah. But the same really isn't the case with making your permitting available digitally or vital records, whatever it might be. So what are some of those maybe institutional barriers that are still causing a lot of folks to have to visit town hall or or city hall? Is it just that elected officials and city management are from a different era and probably don't place as much value on digital accessibility as some younger cohorts in major metropolitan areas? Do you have any thoughts on this? That's certainly part of it. If it weren't for the vision of those in a part of Mayor Walsh's initial administration that believed in digital service delivery, the digital team may may not exist. Um, But even without that executive sponsorship, if you will, that did that did wane over time. It was about institutionalizing it. And there are so many career folks of a different time, of a different age at City Hall that I had to convince, support. Um, They don't believe in changing it because they've done it this way forever and they still feel like they're providing value. And so there's this evolution that needs to happen between generations to help people realize, well, we're still helping people. There may not be that close proximity physical uh, exchange if you will, between between you and the resident, but you're able to help them within minutes or seconds and they can get on with their day. You know, they shouldn't be thinking about the city as a burden and they'll be more proud. They'll be more, it's a better participant in society is my belief if they are appreciative and their city is an efficient part of their day. They're more likely to I'd say get involved or even just just the positive nature and vibe of the community. And even if that's your, you know, you're submitting a 311 request or you're giving a city employee a little bit more time um, and respect, as you know, they're kind of working through a challenge for you. If, if every engagement you, that you have with the city is negative, you're probably going to have a much different set of interactions uh, with, with your government. That's a whole other kind of theoretical topic, I believe. But what you're getting at not only is it the belief systems of older generations, but it's also the policies around procurement that can be challenging and, and kind of the typical vendors that you might work with. And that kind of can lead you down a, a path of too many kind of heavy investments, too much technology debt. This stuff doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be full scale enterprise systems to do what you need to do. 
But the other challenge is I know exactly where many counties and many towns are at. I worked with them at the federal level. And when working at the city here, we're all in it together. And so I and my team have been a part of over 100 conversations in recent years with other city governments, with other towns. They're coming to us for help or ideas. You know, I'd like to grow my team to two from one. Like, how did you do it to get to the size you are now? And oftentimes there just aren't the resources at all to bring in anybody beyond somebody who's straddling between communications and also managing the website. And they can't think about app development. It, it, to that degree, it is more complex than probably 90% of municipalities across the country can handle. And so that's where I feel like there's exciting work developing from the federal level through U.S. Digital Services, 18F. I know they're looking to expand more government support at the local level, which would be wonderful. This should be coming from state states as well. And cities like Boston, if I could take it further, our model could more easily be replicated for other cities and towns across Massachusetts than the mass.gov example. Um, that's just another level of hierarchy. And they were very kind to offer any technology support that they could when we were going through code migrations and whatnot. But our, our information architecture, the structure of it, um, it's, it would be much easier for other cities and towns to replicate it even if they're smaller, just because the the structure of departments and programs is probably much more similar than it is at the state level. But nonetheless, states should probably be looking at grants opportunities. They should be looking at projects and things that they can construct or build that are systems that other cities and counties can can either jump on and and mimic. I mean, a a town of 10,000 still has to provide the same services, but they shouldn't be thinking about it a website hosting provider, these things they shouldn't have to worry about. They should know where their their data is and they should know who they're servicing and they should be able to provide those services effectively. But there's a lot of technology stuff that they shouldn't have to get involved in that if states took a greater supporting approach and even larger cities took a greater supporting approach for a regional effort, a lot could be accomplished. And I think that will come over, over the next few years because I'm not the only one with this idea. Yeah, I guess two thoughts come to mind there. I've certainly been surprised at the lack of really shared services models that exist in government within states and within geographic areas. And then secondly, totally agree on that procurement point, that massive enterprise investment that a city makes that effectively weds them to that vendor over a long period of time. As a result, their and basically their residences as an extension are at the whim of the research and development or lack thereof of that specific vendor, uh, rather than being able to maybe move a little bit more nimbly course. Yeah, changing tech a little bit. Thinking about a, a different generation coming in and becoming taxpayers, does the ongoing digitization of City Hall and whatever way that that is going to play out actually provide a bit of an interesting opportunity for a city to help residents reconceptualize their relationship with their city, what they expect from the city, what the city expects from them? I hope so. I, and I think so. There's going to be a lot of interesting change over the next five years, particularly as it pertains to data security. And we're we're already bringing up these questions now. And of course, we're thinking about it as a city. People are having and gathering more knowledge about their information and where it's stored. And of course, all of these, please accept our cookies messages across every website you go to now. That can go one of two ways. Either people will start to tune it out and just accept it and things will continue on or there will be 
increased skepticism and increased wariness to the point of it will completely backfire. And I do worry about this. And we haven't we haven't done a good job as a city or even as a country getting to a point of of trust with government. I don't know that we ever will. I mean, we've always, as Americans, had a healthy disrespect or or regard, a healthy regard for political power. I'd say it there's no such thing as kind of healthy disrespect. It's gone far in the other direction now. But at the end of the day, we are in a society where government is providing services and government has information. And there are things that need to be provided and need to be regulated in order for us to have a certain quality of life. But this societal contract right now between our public and government is completely haywire. And I don't think there's a a majority sense of what that relationship even should look like, let alone majority understanding of what information the government ought to provide. And, And what I'm getting at is that across the city of Boston, we have information on basic demographics. We have records of parking tickets. We have records of who's been born in the city, who's passed away in the city, who's gotten a marriage license here. We have all these data points and there's a lot of fear about government being able to to watch people. And I can tell you that where all this data is stored, there's no way that even in Boston, we have our act together enough to be able to follow someone in that way. But at the end of the day, if we want to provide better services and we want to be able to suggest things or send reminders about, hey, you need to pay your excise tax. Like we do so in mail, but if somebody wants an app to be reminded on their phone or someone wants to be reminded, hey, move your car to the other side of the street so you don't get towed because we're street sweeping or, hey, you might need to do this because the state's changing a policy. Like if if we want to get to a better place where everything is app driven and this expectation is they'll be able to take care of all their needs on their phone, even if those needs are interacting with the city government, then we need to have more resources to do a better job with that data management and security that goes along with it. But then there needs to be this agreement with the public and local government that we have this information, which we already do to a degree. It's just not well organized to be able to provide these better services. So it's a real interesting interplay, if I'm making sense. And I'm not sure what's going to happen there. I'm really not sure. We've done a lot of work to try and consolidate our data. We've done a lot of work with cybersecurity. We're taking this incredibly seriously. But I've been a part of many conversations where we're like, well, should we provide one mobile app so that residents can take care of all their services with the city rather than having five, you know, one for 311 and one for parking reminders and one for trash pickup reminders, which is what we have currently. We've got at least five different apps that residents can download. I would love to have one single app for that, but the data isn't consolidated enough to to produce that. And, you know, we're just not, we're not there yet. And so, like I said earlier, the city could get to a place where we we ultimately provide an app experience like that for the new generation that's likely to expect it or want it. And maybe that'll just be fine and no one will raise questions, but then are there other, are there other data concerns and what's happening in the data privacy space? Will there be any kind of problem or concern or risk there? Um, And where this played out in an interesting way, well, it didn't even play out. It was more just internal discussions is when we were thinking about creating a municipal ID card, which is a physical representation of what I'm talking about, is that 
as a resident of Boston, you would get a municipal ID card that would enable you to access city services if you had no other form of identification. And the reason this was a concern is because we, we didn't want to create a calling card for anyone that didn't have proper paperwork to be here. And we talked about, well, let's make it a municipal ID card for anyone so it's not an identifiable factor. And, you know, we talked about the pros and cons and some people were saying, well, I'm nervous if the city of Boston even has this information because that means you could share it with the federal government. And of course we can assure them that that wouldn't be the intention. And we don't share information like that with the federal government, but of course there are certain reasons where that, where that may come up. And so it just gets incredibly complex incredibly fast. And these are not easy things to decide. There are things that would need to be decided at, at, at a larger level. Speaking with my counterparts in Amsterdam, they share identification numbers from the federal, state, and local level. So they're able to provide these single single app experiences for folks and they can get tax payment reminders and they can do all these things. And it, it creates kind of a harmonious experience with your local government, but it raises questions in, in other ways too for, for individual security and, and privacy. That was a very long answer, but it's a complex topic. No, and I think um, extremely insightful. I want to maybe touch on something that you were talking about in terms of increasing the accessibility of City Hall by moving in a digital direction and somewhat of a, I guess, a an accessibility paradox that may result. You know, Boston, like any other major city, isn't homogenous. On the one hand, improving digital services may enable better access to those services for people that lack time, energy, and access to be able to go to City Hall because they work two jobs or whatever it might be. But on the other hand, what's become really apparent in the past year is that digital accessibility is not spread evenly across the population. And yes, there are real efforts to improve, for example, broadband accessibility, but still, how do we ensure that low-income residents, for example, in Dorchester or Roxbury, have the same level of service provided to them as those do in North End or Back Bay? Yeah, this is this was what we faced at the beginning of the pandemic. It was such a terrible time uh, when everybody was expected to just go home. And so many were like, well, that means I'll be completely cut off from the world. I don't have a computer. I don't have internet access. And so the city of Boston worked incredibly hard with internet service providers to see what they were willing to offer, whether that was devices or hotspot access, but all of that was really temporary. These are, these are more systemic issues that need to be solved. And in normal times, you might say, okay, well, someone can get to a library, but even that wasn't a possibility during the pandemic. We needed to provide access within people's homes when they couldn't go anywhere else. So this will be a larger problem, and it's actually a focal point of Boston's recovery. I hope that this problem is one that is incrementally and, and, and sizably addressed, You know, both sizably now, but incrementally over time the infrastructure of, of cities across the country has to be looked at to be able to provide quick internet access or any internet access. And then training on these devices, that was another aspect. I mean, we we worked with a Rapport fellow that researched this and it wasn't just the devices, it was even familiarity with these devices. There are constituents and, and individuals that you wouldn't necessarily even think about in your everyday life that struggle with device usage. It could be anything from a handicap. It could be somebody's recently coming out of incarceration and they've been there for 20 years and they've never seen a, a mobile phone 
like this before. The training needs to be provided and you can't do virtual trainings if they don't have the device. And so it's a matter of kind of looking up and down and all around at these societal access points and thinking about what the role is of city government to, to provide those services and grants uh, for, for local nonprofits are always a good thing. And we gave out a lot of money through the Boston Resiliency Fund throughout the pandemic for this work, working with school children. And there are, there are probably, you know, nearly 50 groups that received resources to do things and, and, the digital equity access work was just one of those. It's an ongoing issue and one that was very, very apparent throughout this pandemic. And it still is a challenge to this day, even though we're seeing somewhat return to normalcy. For our, uh, our closing question, we would like to ask what one accepted truth of local government is that you think is incorrect? And you kind of touched on one earlier in terms of, hey, a lot of people think that government workers clock out at 2 p.m. and the reality is much different. Is there anything else that comes mm-hmm. to mind when I ask that question? Well, that was the first one that comes to mind. Just the passion behind people's work and the dedication. And I experienced this at the federal government too. There are people that have spent their lives studying this work and are trying to make decisions and, and influence and create ways in which we can go about society that are for the betterment of society. And I think that's one thing people are quick to focus on the negative. Oh, well, government workers are lazy or it's just misuse of taxpayer dollars. And sure, there's there's some of that, but the majority of it is that there are good people trying to do good things. And I've witnessed and been a part of that my whole career. And I just think that what we really need is a more informed and more engaged public to be a part of that interaction. It's hard to know it unless you see it. And it's hard to know it unless you engage and have a relationship with or, or friendships with, or even some connection to somebody working on the, on the government side of things. We're all in this together. It's easy to, to throw things over the wall, but we're all trying to, to make a better life for ourselves. And most of the people that enter government work are, are trying to do that, whether they're working in the national parks or for the National Weather Service or the Environmental Protection Agency or consu- consumer protection. They're all passionate and driven to try and fix a problem. Many people are, are, are still working to try and fix those problems. And none of this is black and white. None of this can be solved. These are complex issues. That's why this isn't easy. And this is why it, it's not resolved quickly. There's not a, necessarily a single solution to all of our problems. It, it takes more flexibility and creativity. I hope that the approach of all government agencies and the structure of government in our country continues to get more nimble. I hope it continues to get more flexible. I think that will make an incredible difference. It, it needs to happen. The pace of our expectations and the pace of life, it just it just has to. And so it's not necessarily more money, but it's, it's a rethink and restructure within. But again, that too is a larger problem to solve. So we'll see how long it takes to, to see some improvements. Absolutely. Uh, Janeth really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, touched on environmentalism and equity and regulation and overall how to better serve residents. So thank you so much for your time and really looking forward to seeing what challenges you continue to tackle. Thank you so much, Jack. This was a pleasure. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.